This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The White Ship by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 19 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The White Ship by H.P. Lovecraft I am Basil Elton, keeper of the North Point light that my father and grandfather kept before me. Far from the shore stands the grey lighthouse above sunken slimy rocks that are seen when the tide is low, but unseen when the tide is high. Past that beacon for a century have swept the majestic barks of the seven seas. In the days of my grandfather, they were many. In the days of my father, not so many. And now there are so few that I sometimes feel strangely alone, as though I were the last man on our planet. From far shores came those white-sailed argosies of old. From far eastern shores where warm suns shine and sweet odours linger about strange gardens and gay temples. The old captains of the sea came often to my grandfather and told him of these things, which in turn he told to my father, and my father told to me in the long autumn evenings when the wind howled eerily from the east. And I have read more of these things, and of many things besides, in books men gave me when I was young, and filled with wonder. But more wonderful than the lore of old men, and the lore of books, is the secret lore of ocean. Blue, green, grey, white, or black, smooth, ruffled, or mountainous, that ocean is not silent. All my days I have watched it and listened to it, and I know it well. At first it told me only the plain little tales of calm beaches and near ports. But with the years it grew more friendly and spoke of other things, of things more strange and more distant in space and in time. Sometimes at twilight the grey vapours of the horizon have parted to grant me glimpses of the ways beyond. And sometimes at night, the deep waters of the sea have grown clear and phosphorescent to grant me glimpses of the ways beneath. And these glimpses have been as often of the ways that were and the ways that might be as of the ways that are. For ocean is more ancient than the mountains and freighted with the memories and the dreams of time. Out of the south it was that the white ship used to come when the moon was full and high in the heavens. Out of the south it would glide very smoothly and silently over the sea, and whether the sea was rough or calm, and whether the wind was friendly or adverse, it would always glide smoothly and silently, its sails distant, and its long tiers of oars moving rhythmically. One night I espied upon the deck 
a man, bearded and robed, and he seemed to beckon to me to embark for fair unknown shores. Many times afterwards I saw him under the full moon, and ever did he beckon me. Very brightly did the moon shine on the night I answered the call, and I walked out over the waters to the white ship on a bridge of moonbeams. The man who beckoned now spoke a welcome to me in a soft language I seemed to know well, and the hours were filled with soft songs of the oarsmen as we glided away into a mysterious south, golden with the glow of that full mellow moon. And when the day dawned, rosy and effulgent, I beheld the green shores of far lands, bright and beautiful, and to me unknown. Up from the sea rose lordly terraces of verdure, tree-studded and showing here and there the white gleaming roofs and colonnades of strange temples. As we grew nearer the green shore, the bearded man told me of that land, the land of Tsar, where dwell all the dreams and thoughts of beauty that come to men once and then are forgotten. And when I looked upon the terraces again, I saw that what he said was true, for among the sights before me were many things I had seen through the mists beyond the horizon and in the phosphorescent depths of ocean. There too were forms and fantasies more splendid than any I had ever known. The visions of young poets who died in want before the world could learn of what they had seen and dreamed. But we did not set foot upon the sloping meadows of Tsar, for it is told that he who treads them may never more return to his native shore. As the white ship sailed silently away from the templed terraces of Tsar, we beheld on the distant horizon ahead the spires of a mighty city, and the bearded man said to me, This is Thalerian, the city of a thousand wonders, wherein reside all those mysteries that man has striven in vain to fathom. And I looked again at close range, and saw that the city was greater than any city I had known or dreamed of before. Into the sky the spires of its temples reached, so that no man might behold their peaks, and far beyond the horizon stretched the grim grey walls, over which one might spy only a few roofs, weird and ominous, yet adorned with rich friezes and alluring sculptures. I yearned mightily to enter this fascinating yet repellent city, and besought the bearded man to land me at the stone pier by the huge carven gate Acarial, but he gently denied my wish, saying, Into Thalerian, the city of a thousand wonders, many have passed, but none returned. Therein walk only demons and mad things that are no longer men and the streets are white with the unburied bones of those who have looked upon the idol on Lathi that reigns over the city. So the white ship sailed on, past the walls of Thalerian, 
and followed for many days a southward flying bird whose glossy plumage matched the sky out of which it had appeared. Then came we to a pleasant coast gay with blossoms of every hue, where as far inland as we could see basked lovely groves and radiant arbours beneath the meridian sun. From bowers beyond our view came bursts of song and snatches of lyric harmony, interspersed with faint laughter so delicious that I urged the rowers onward in my eagerness to reach the scene. And the bearded man spoke no word, but watched me as we approached the lily-lined shore. Suddenly a wind blowing over the flowering meadows and leafy woods brought a scent at which I trembled. The wind grew stronger, and the air was filled with the lethal charnel odour of plague-stricken towns and uncovered cemeteries. And as we sailed madly away from this damnable coast, the bearded man spoke at last, saying, This is Zora, the land of pleasures unattained. And so once more, the white ship followed the bird of heaven over warm, blessed seas, fanned by caressing, aromatic breezes. Day after day, and night after night did we sail, and when the moon was full, we would listen to the soft songs of the oarsmen, sweet as on the distant night when we sailed away from my far native land. And it was by moonlight that we anchored at last in the harbour of Sona Nil, which is guarded by twin headlands of crystal that rise from the sea and meet in a resplendent arch. This is the land of fancy, and we walked to the verdant shore upon a golden bridge of moonbeams. In the land of Sona Nil there is neither time nor space, neither suffering nor death, and there I dwelt for many eons. Green are the groves and pastures, bright and fragrant the flowers, blue and musical the streams, clear and cool the fountains, and stately and gorgeous the temples, castles, and cities of Sona Nil. Of that land there is no bound, for beyond each vista of beauty rises another more beautiful. Over the countryside, and amidst the splendour of cities, rove at will the happy folk, of whom all are gifted with unmarred grace and unalloyed happiness. For the eons I dwelt there, I wandered through blissful gardens, where quaint pagodas peep from pleasing clumps of bushes, and where the white walks are bordered with delicate blossoms. I climbed gentle hills, from whose summits I could see entrancing panoramas of loveliness, with steepled towns nestling in verdant valleys, and with the golden domes of gigantic cities glittering on the infinitely distant horizon. And I viewed by moonlight the sparkling sea, the crystal headlands, and the placid harbour wherein lay anchored the white ship. It was against the full moon one night, in the immemorial year of Tharp, that I first saw the beckoning form of the celestial bird, and felt the first stirrings of unrest. 
Then I spoke to the bearded man, and told him of my new yearnings to depart for remote Cathuria, which no man hath seen, but all believe to lie beyond the basalt pillars of the west. It is the land of hope, and in it shine the perfect ideals of all that we know elsewhere, or at least so men relate. But the bearded man said to me, Beware those perilous seas, wherein men say Cathoria lies. In Sonanil there is no pain nor death, but who can tell what lies beyond the basalt pillars of the west? Nathless, at the next full moon, I boarded the white ship, and with the reluctant bearded man left the happy harbour for untravelled seas. And the bird of heaven flew before, and led us towards the basalt pillars of the west. But this time the oarsmen sang no soft songs under the full moon. In my mind I would often picture the unknown land of Cathuria, with its splendid groves and palaces, and would wonder what new delights there awaited me. Cathuria, I would say to myself, is the abode of gods, and the land of unnumbered cities of gold. Its forests are of aloe and sandalwood, and even as the fragrant groves of Camarin, among the trees flutter gay birds sweet with song. Under the green and flowery mountains of Cathuria stand temples of pink marble, rich with carven and painted glories, and having in their courtyards cool fountains of silver, where pearl with ravishing music the scented waters that come from the grotto-born river Narg. And the cities of Cathuria at cinctured with golden walls, and their pavements are also gold. In the gardens of these cities are strange orchards, and perfumed lakes whose beds are of coral and amber. At night the streets and the gardens are lit by gay lanthorns, fashioned from the three-coloured shell of the tortoise, and here resound the soft notes of the singer and the lutenist. And the houses of the cities of Cathuria are all palaces, each built over a fragrant canal bearing the waters of the sacred Narg. Of marble and porphyry are the houses, and rude with glittering gold that reflects the rays of the sun and enhances the splendor of the cities, as blissful gods view them from the distant peaks. Fairest of all is the palace of the great monarch Doriab, whom some say to be a demigod, and others a god. High is the palace of Doriab, and many are the turrets of marble upon its walls. In its wide halls many multitudes assemble, and here hang the trophies of the ages. And the roof is pure gold, set upon tall pillars of rubies and azure, and having such carven figures of gods and heroes, that he who looks up to these heights seems to gaze upon the living Olympus. And the floor of the palace is glass, under which flow the cunningly lighted waters of the Narg, gay with gaudy fish, not known beyond the bounds of lovely Cathuria. Thus I would speak to myself of Cathuria, but ever would the bearded man warn me to turn back to the happy shores of Sonanil. For Sonanil is known of men, while none 
hath ever beheld Cathuria. And on the thirty-first day that we followed the bird, we beheld the basalt pillars of the west. Shrouded in mist they were, so that no man might peer beyond them or see their summits, which indeed some say reach even to the heavens. And the bearded man again implored me to turn back, but I heeded him not. For from the mists beyond the basalt pillars, I fancied here came the notes of singer and lutenist, sweeter than the sweetest songs of Sonanil, and sounding mine own praises, the praises of me, who had voyaged far under the full moon, and dwelt in the land of fancy. So to the sound of melody, the white ship sailed into the mist betwixt the basalt pillars of the west. And when the music ceased, and the mists lifted, we beheld not the land of Cathuria, but a swift rushing, resistless sea, over which our hapless bark was borne towards some unknown goal. Soon to our ears came the distant thunder of falling waters, and to our eyes appeared on the far horizon ahead the titanic spray of a monstrous cataract wherein the oceans of the world dropped down to abysmal nothingness. Then did the bearded man say to me, with tears on his cheek, We have rejected the beautiful land of Sonanil, which we may never behold again. The gods are greater than men, and they have conquered. And I closed my eyes before the crash that I knew would come, shutting out the sight of the celestial bird which flapped its mocking blue wings over the brink of the torrent. Out of that crash came darkness, and I heard the shrieking of men and of things that were not men. From the east tempestuous winds arose and chilled me as I crouched on the slab of damp stone which had risen beneath my feet. Then, as I heard another crash, I opened my eyes and beheld myself on the platform of that lighthouse from whence I had sailed so many aeons ago. In the darkness below there loomed the vast blurred outlines of a vessel breaking up on the cruel rocks. And as I glanced out over the waste, I saw that the light had failed for the first time since my grandfather had assumed its care. And in the later watches of the night, when I went within the tower, I saw on the wall a calendar which still remained as when I had left it at the hour I sailed away. With the dawn I descended the tower and looked for wreckage upon the rocks. But what I found was only this, a strange dead bird whose hue was of the azure sky and a single shattered spar of a whiteness greater than that of the wave-tips or the mountain snow. And thereafter the ocean told me its secrets no more, and though many times since the moon has shone full and high in the heavens, the white ship from the south never came again. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Seth. I am Jim. And we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft's 1919 short story, The White Ship. 
Uh, is this a science fiction story or a horror story, guys? No. Is it a fantasy story? I'd go with sort fantasy. Of. Yeah. Yeah. There's not much science going on in it. It's very hard um, to classify because there's a lot of stuff going on in it, despite how short it is. Yeah. Um, there are horror elements in it. Um, I, I noticed in reading other people's reviews that uh, everybody's sort of disappointed that there's not <laughs> really enough horror elements. That, but um, the, the thing I was, you know, there's a story called The Idle Days on the Yan, which I think is probably most similar to it outside of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, that's by Lord Dunsany. Uh, Mr. Jim Muno, you read that, or Seth? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I believe this no. was the um, first of several tales um, Lovecraft wrote after discovering Dunsany. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say, that you know, I haven't read every Dunsany, but it's very similar to Idle Days on the Yan. Uh, Idle Days on the Yan is set on, uh, it's set in a dream, uh, and there's a river called the River Yan. The guy gets on the boat, and they go down the river. <laughs> and there's, there, I don't think there's any conflict in the entire story. Um, maybe there's something at the end, but it's, uh, it is, if you compare this to that, this is much more Lovecraftian than, than Dunsany's story is, is more like wistful. Whereas this, mm. there, there's some, there's some wistful elements, but actually, um, it's much more like, uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, right? It's, it's sort of like, uh, we don't know why the guy's being punished, but he did something wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, do you remember the ending of the Idle Days on the Yan, Mr. Jimin? Um, it just kind of stops, really. It, um, he comes to the end of the journey, probably more or less literally. If I remember yeah. calling um, right again, I should have read this only last night. Um, but it's kind of whereas white ship, there is um, the actual journey and a kind of a, a spiritual or a psychological sort of analog in the way events patrolled unfold. Um, in the days of Yan, is more just like a picaresque journey. It's like like a a long prose poem. And yeah. it's it's about describing lands that never were, and there isn't really much else to it, which which is not a, a diss of the story, because I think it's it's a, it's a lovely little tale, but it's kind of it's one of those pieces where you know narrative isn't exactly the point. It is it's about the language and the imagination. It, yeah, the structure of the story doesn't seem to be as important as the as the journey itself, right? Like mm. going, I mean, it, it's right in the title, Idle Days on the Yan. Um, whereas uh, it's, it's funny to me, like the, the bird in this story, which I didn't, I didn't pick up as like, so, I, I mean, I noticed there was a bird, but actually the bird is, is kind of like the eidolon for the ship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that word comes up in this story, the, what, what's the name of the, uh, the eidolon lathi. Right, right. Um, so I was thinking after w- reading uh, the comic book adaptation, which I think is really fabulous, uh, by Jason Thompson. Did you see that one, Mister Jim Moon? I, I talked yes, to Seth. Yes, I he did. Um, didn't manage to well, see it. Yeah, that, that was that was lovely. Um, it's really beautiful, mm. but I think it it picks up um, the sort of the beauty of the story 
um, and does a, a lot of interesting things uh, visually that the story does sort of um, descriptively. But the, the, the bird is there throughout the story, whereas we're only reminded of, in, in the adaptation. Uh, we're only reminded of it so strongly at the end, mm-hmm. I find. Um, and that, of course, is, is what makes me think of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which has the same sort of, you know, he's done something wrong. He goes on this long journey. Uh, there is that aspect of the ghost ship sort of gliding over the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that made me think about why is the bird blue? Because bluebirds are relatively rare, right? Yeah. As opposed to white, like the albatross, uh, which is a real bird. But this one, the, there's the blue bird and the white ship. And then the ship never really touches the water. It glides through the water, right? Mm-hmm. Just like a bird gliding through the air. And it, and then, of course, there's that very striking visual image at the end where the, the ship goes over the, the cataract and falls. As right. if it wasn't going to. Yeah, and the right. whole the whole idea mm-hmm. of the world, you know, the world ending, the seas, you know, falling off the earth um, itself is a, it's not a not a scientific, you know, view of the earth. <laughs> no, um, it's funny because I, I, in rereading it, I realize uh, that at the end we get a description of Cthulhu, but he's he he doesn't actually go there. He he describes it in incredible detail, right? You know the. The trees are made of aloe and sandalwood, or the trees are aloe and sandalwood trees, right? He describes every part of the of the land, but actually he he's just imagining it, which is really interesting because I, I, in the first reading I was like, oh, this is another one of those lands with all you know rivers of gold and you know crystal headlands and all that stuff, <laughs> but actually that final description of that land is is a is just him sort of dreaming it into existence. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. Well, this is a, the the um the actual section that is that long few paragraphs where he describes, you know, Cathoria and how it's built on the sacred river at Narg. It reminds me very much of another uh, Coleridge poem, Kubla Khan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Pleasure Dome course. was erected where the sacred river Alf begins its course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Which again, also is a dream poem, right? Yeah, dream, exactly. Yeah, dream, yeah. Uh, yeah, dream, dreamland, and, uh, and a dream snatched away and dashed. That's you right. Have the fragment of Kubla Khan. Wow, good connect. I mean, yeah, it's not just idle days on the end, is it? It's it's a bunch of stuff. No, there's definitely Coleridge is a, a strong, a strong element yeah. of that there, and there's and, and a good a good chunk chunk of Poe as well. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to throw all my good stuff out first. But <laughs> I, there so is I was going to go to Dreamland. I um, love Dreamlands. That's one of my I mean, favorite poems I mean, by him. Can, but it didn't. It, it, it didn't immediately strike me. But well, yeah, where well, Lovecraft gets idle on from. Yeah, know, that's right. The beginning of by a route obscure and lonely, haunted by in the angels only, where an idol on named Night on a black throne reigns upright. I have reached these lands but newly, from a dim, ultimate Thule, from a weird, wild climb that lieth sublime, 
out, out of space, space out, out of, of time. Out of time. I love it. Yes. I just love like, that. Just like the line of Solar Nil, because that's out of space. Yeah, out and of what time a great too. name for that line. Uh, I mean, all of the names are very well picked there. They're almost like what they, you know, so Lathi is what's Thalarion. Lathi is the king of Thalarion. Mm. It's like almost an inversion of the name, you know, Lathi. Uh, Thalarion. It's it's like you just flip it back and forth, and it there's there's that image. Uh, I I also think the river Narg is in Arg. another Narg. The river Narg. I love that name. <laughs> um, I isn't the river Narg in Celepheus mentioned, or isn't there a land called Nargia or something like that? Uh, it might be in Celepheus. It might also be mentioned in um, Dream Quest of Unknown Cadus. Right, I've not read that one yet. So that's in, that's in this, uh, it's set in the in the same world, and there's um these bits in this that are um are later echoed, sometimes almost like exactly the same like phrases, um in Dream Quest of Unknown Cadath, and mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the hero of that, Randolph Carter, actually consults um the lead character of the White Ship, Basil Elton, who mm-hmm. we are told is an old dreamer and lighthouse keeper of Kingsport Town. He must have got back there somehow. Or is he still trapped? His Eidolon is still trapped in the Dreamlands. And oh, well, no, at the, the end of the White Ship, he does, he does return. He's left returned to the lighthouse. lighthouse, but he just, the White Ship will come no more for him. Hmm. Yeah, he's sort of, it's, it's very rhyme of the Ancient Mariner-ish. He's, he's kind of an older, wiser, wiser man. He doesn't, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't, the sea doesn't tell him tales anymore. Um, it's very unlovecraftian in the in the sense that, although it's kind of tinged with sadness and that he doesn't hear these wild, fanciful stories anymore, he's also kind of at peace or you know left alone, which doesn't <laughs> usually happen in Lovecraft stories. Do, what do you what do you make at the beginning? We get the description, you know, of the lighthouse um, having you know in the days of the grandfather there was many ships, and then in the days of his father there were fewer ships. And now there are so few ships in Basil Elton's time that he sometimes thinks that he is the last man on Earth. I thought that that uh, that I was reading that with this this story with a student, and that line particularly struck her. But it, you know, being a lighthouse keeper, a lonely lighthouse keeper, is got to be pretty lonely, especially when there's not even any ships coming yeah. anymore. Well, that gives you the idea that he plants a seed in your mind, or Lovecraft doesn't speed it out, that, you know, the white ship is uh, a great delusion or fugue mm. state or trance that Elton has fallen into because he's just being mesmerized by the sea and there's, there's no, <laughs> you know, there's no ships are coming by. He's lighting this lamp for no reason, for no one. <laughs> and then, of course, at the end... um, the, the that that tragedy sort of why is he being punished sort of thing, um, the, the ship that crashes on his on his reef, right, is because he's left the light off. He, he's let the mm-hmm. light go off, mm-hmm. and that's uh, it's interesting because he's on that ship right in the dream when it hit, goes over the cataracts and hits the rocks. And is dashed to pieces, and all that's left is a white spar and a blue bird. That's his dreams 
have been destroyed by his inaction. It, it, it reminds me also, and I, I was looking it up, um, Polaris apparently, which we've done as a podcast as well, was, uh, is considered in the Dreamland stories and it has a dreaming guy. Um, is he in a lighthouse though? He's, he's in a swamp, isn't he? Uh, well, his asylum's in the swamp, but his job in, um, Polaris, he's, uh, um, a guard in a watchtower. Right. Who is posted right. to protect the, uh, the, the city to watch out for the, uh, ravening no kefs who come in from the glaciers. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, the yeah, terrible and... cannibal monsters that will overrun the city if they're not kept out. It's from right. around the same period too, I think, that story. More or less, yeah, that's still, it's, it's um, Early, early twenties. It's it's in that, that, that sort of first, that's not the first stage of Lovecraft appear where he's writing kind of intermittently and still writing a lot of poetry as well. It, it has a beautiful. A lot of these stories do, but it has a particularly beautiful symmetry with the same lines at the, at the beginning as the same lines at the end. Mm. And I know that's a, a very Lovecraftian thing mm. uh, to do. Just Lovecraft, you know, he's a, f- a fan of poetry, so. He does that, but I, I thought that, you know, the structure is very similar. But then I was also thinking, you know, it's not just, no matter, no matter what style or mode of writing an author goes to do, they always bring themselves to it. Right. Uh, it seems. So, you know, if Poe is writing this, there would be a beautiful woman. There's no beautiful woman here. <laughs> and she doesn't Poe is writing to be a beautifully dead woman, yeah. Yes, that's right. She she has to be... She, the, very important that she die. <laughs> um, and there is a Poe story that I really like. I, I think... I There's a... His name... His story names are often very difficult because they are essentially all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Eleonora, I think, is what it's called. Is that the one with the there's a, a nameless man, nameless young man, and a nameless young woman who live in a valley of flowers, and there's a river that's named like the, you know, the river of song or something like that. You know, and there's no there's no uh, real names other than you know, sort of like made up ones, just like in this. Um, and he. He promises to never leave her. She dies, and then he marries another woman, and the ghost come back, comes back to haunt him. But surprisingly, um, doesn't punish him. Just says it's okay, <laughs> which is very unusual yeah. for Paul. Yeah, he was yeah. in such a great mood that day. Well, he, he told that story a couple of other times. As uh, yeah, uh, Lygia. Lygia, yeah, I was thinking of that. <laughs> so many words. It's uh, there. <laughs> it's the same story, but the, that's the thing, right? Is that that story is a Poe essential? No matter what you do, it's Poe, right? Mm. Um, and this doesn't have the whimsy of the, the white ship. Doesn't have the whimsy of Dunsany. Dunsany is like, oh, let's do this, and then we'll have lots of thieves. <laughs> And they'll they'll have some fun, and we'll have some more fun with the language, and then it's whimsical, and we're done. Uh, but with Lovecraft, I mean, the structure of this is like so many of his other stories. So it, it's missing the horror element, but actually it's not. Think of, we did uh, Hypnos, right? Mm-hmm. 
And Hypnos is the same thing. There's a guy with a beard. There's always a, the, in Polaris, there's a guy with a beard who's his sort of, me, the main character's mentor. Um, and they go on a, uh, astral projecting story, uh, astral projecting journey to, uh, another time or another place. And then they go too far and they're punished. Um, and there's always moonbeams, like you were pointing out, uh, on, um, <laughs> on the, the moonbox. Moon yeah. There's a moonbeam, uh, in Polaris. There's a, a star beam. Here there's a, an actual lighthouse beam and also the beam from the actual moon, which comes up more than once, right? He walks across, uh, to the ship on the bridge of moonbeams, and then they they leave the ship that's anchored in the harbor on a bridge of moonbeams. Yeah, they're going to Son Anil by moonbeam as well, yeah. Right, yeah. moonbeam. Uh, the the so, whole theme of big cities is really interesting in Lovecraft. Um, big ancient cities, uh, they seem to show up everywhere. He just seems fascinated by that idea. Yeah. A civilization is... Um, is is uh, the the word literally means like you know living in mm. cities yeah mm. and uh you can't have books without cities and we get that even in the beginning of this story too right uh i'm reading from the comic book it says in the days of my grandfather there were many in the days of my father not so many he's talking about the the ships but then we see him holding the books right and he said he had uh, what was it? Three, uh, three sets of books, just like he had three sets of, uh, here it is. Oh, it's lore that comes up three times. But more wonderful than the lore of old men and the lore of books is the lore of the ocean. Or lore of ocean. But yeah, he says he was given many books in his youth. Mm. Here. He says, and I've read more of these things. Uh, he's learning from the sea and then he's learning from the books. And I've read more of these things and of many things besides in the books men gave me when I was young and filled with wonder. As opposed to now oh, when wow. he's not filled with wonder anymore, right? Right. But that that's Lovecraft too, because uh apparently his grandfather's library was the thing that kept him alive. He doesn't go to school very much, just reads all the time when he was a, a young man. It's, it, it, I, I don't think you can, you know, say it's not very Lovecraftian if you've read a lot of Lovecraft because it, it seems, to, I mean, there are even the, the horrible elements here and there, right? Other than the, the ending, which is more Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. But, uh, yeah, or, anyone who stares at the, uh, Eidolon, um, in, in that one city gets, um, gets killed essentially. You know, their unburied bones litter the streets. Yeah, um, the city Falarian and Lathi, they're two wonderfully evocative names because they're recalling Thatanos, the Greek god of death. Right. And also Lapis, stone. But the actual, the end, the great, when the ship goes off into this, you know, cosmic abyss, that's not dissimilar to the fate of other Lovecraftian protagonists who. Uh, explore the mystery of the universe and then themselves up at the throne of Azathoth, the uh, colossal abyss at the center of all <laughs> creation where Pulse is the demon sultan. 
and kind of the, the white <laughs> ship is kind of a, a more genteel version <laughs> of uh, going to a Zayathoth's throne, is which uh, um, but they, he's, he's, you knew the fate of Randolph Carter um, and uh, Walter Gilman in Dreams of the Witch House. It's also a, yeah, a falling, falling dream. Um, you know, you have that sensation of in a dream where you fall and then you you wake that's up. Right. That's right. There, there's some um, in the end of Hypnos, they're being chased by by the uh, the thing that they push too far. Right. That's that's really the sin that the old man says. You know, don't do this. And, and the oarsmen they stop singing their songs when when. Uh, Basil decides, you know, we got to leave the land of Sonanel and move on to Cathuria. He says, it's not a good idea. Men have never been there. We don't know anything about it. And they go over that edge, and it's like that's the barrier that they pushed beyond, that they shouldn't mm. have pushed beyond. Mm. It's it's like almost like you, you, you figure out you're in a dream, right? And you say, ah, I know it. And, and that's actually what he does, right? He starts... He starts actively creating the land that he wants it to be, mm, right? And he just sort of shakes himself out of the dream. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the dream quest of unknown Cadeth. I mean, the, the plot device for that is uh, Randolph Carter is seeking to get in the dreamlands to this dream city he has always glimpsed but can never find. And on the course of his journey, he discovers that the city is Cadeth. And that um, it is it is where the gods dwell, and uh, they have removed it from the dreams of men, so they can have it. Uh, and sort of Cthulhu is kind of it's like a proto Cadeth. It's this kind of this wonderful your city of miraculous things and sunset spires. That you know Elton is, you know, he's heard heard rumours of it. I think it's hinted in the land of Son Anil, and then he, he he spins out this creation in his head. And then you have the old your captain at the end saying, you know, the god the gods have conquered. It's kind of mm. it's like Kublai Khan's hubri of building a pleasure palace, building a mm. heaven on earth. It's uh, it's doomed to fail. Yeah. So uh, the what's the postman uh, that woke up Coleridge, right? Uh, yeah. This is from Warlock. Warlock. So it, I think you know he's been probably reviled too much because really we wouldn't have any poem if if he had dreamed it all the way through right it's possible if, yeah because i find that you know if i wake up uh naturally my dreams are far less uh vivid if i have any at all than if um i am woken if well that makes um, sense. jeff vandermeer um talking about the southern reach books that he wrote um, he, it started where he had a dream where he was in a tower and something alive was, you know, writing on the walls with these kind of spore-like, spore-like letters, um, uh, kind of mushroom, uh, yeah, fungal kind of growth letters. And he was following him and he was getting closer to what was writing them. And he, he, he recounts the story and says that something in my mind realized that I was going to see what it was if I kept getting closer. And so I somehow woke myself up because he kind of mm-hmm. felt like if he had seen it, he wouldn't be able to write a story yeah, about it. Can, can wake you, it seems, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, the, but that's that's more William Hope Hodgson than uh, <laughs> Lovecraft <laughs> with the with the fungal growth. 
Although, yeah, uh, it's pretty <laughs> gross stuff. Um, so I, I want to read this section because it totally threw me uh, out of the story when I was rereading it again. I, I, re- I read it and sort of while I'm reading, what will happen is I'm still thinking about the previous lines. So I have to go read it the whole thing again. And as I pass through the parts that I've already experienced, then I, I'm more present when I come to something new, even though I've been through these lands, you know, sort of like yeah. go on a, a walking journey through a place you normally drive through. Um, you see different things than if you uh, only drive is the idea. So, um, so I want to read this section here. It's a paragraph on page 80 of the, uh, of the uh, Weird Tales publication. They came to, then came we to a pleasant coast, gay with blossoms of every hue, where as far inland as we could see basked lovely groves and radiant arbors beneath a meridian sun. From the bowers beyond our view came bursts of song and snatches of lyric, harmony, interspersed with faint laughter, so delicious that I urged the rowers onward in my eagerness to reach the scene. And the bearded man spoke no word, but watched me as we approached the lily-lined shore. Suddenly, a wind blowing from over the flowery meadows and leafy woods brought a scent at which I trembled. The wind grew stronger, and the air was filled with the lethal charnel odor of plague-stricken towns and uncovered cemeteries. And as we sailed madly away from the damnable coast, the bearded man spoke at last, saying, this is Zura, the land of pleasures unattained. Wow. Um, it's so when I, I started like the lily lined shore, I was like, that's very Poe. What, what Poe? Oh, right. And I like this poem is one that I, I go back to a lot. Mm-hmm. I love Dreamlands and it, it actually probably fits the whole theme of this better, but, um, this particular section, brought me to the Valley of Unrest, which uh, there's a couple versions of. The original version has a woman, a dead woman in it, um, <laughs> which uh, named Helen, uh, which is, you know, sort of Ellen and Eleonora and Lenore, right? All uh, the same woman uh, he's always talking about. But this one is is more interesting because it doesn't have a person in it. Um, so it's called the Valley of Unrest. Once it smiled a silent dell where the people did not dwell. They had gone unto the wars, trusting to the mild-eyed stars. Nightly from their azure towers, there's that blue, right? To keep watch above the flowers, in the midst of which all day the red sunlight lazily lay. Now each visitor shall confess the sad valley's restlessness. Nothing there is motionless, nothing save the airs that brood, over the magic solitude. Ah, by no wind are stirred those trees that palpitate like the chill seas around the misty Hebrides. Ah, by no wind those clouds are driven that rustle through the unquiet heaven. Uneasily from morn till even, over the violets that there lie in myriad types of the human eye, over the lilies that there wave and weep above a nameless grave, they wave from out their fragrant tops. External dews come down in drops. They weep from off their delicate stems. Perennial tears descend in gems. And it's 
really interesting because this is a land with no people. They've all gone on to the wars. They're all dead, right? There's a nameless grave. The only thing that can cry is, is the flowers. But Lovecraft, right, makes it uh, even more gruesome with the sickly smell of a what, uncovered charnel. cemeteries. Yeah, yeah a, char- a charnel smell. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> the land of Zura. <laughs> the land of pleasures unattained. What the heck does that mean? Well, so on one hand, you have the sense that they have, you know, this gay, bright coat, and it looks lovely, and passing travelers, oh, we'll stop here, and, yeah, and then definitely some nameless things that feast upon the corpses of men that live there. And it's kind of, yum, yum. Yep. But you didn't get a, the pleasure wasn't yours visiting here, it was whatever dwells there and slays you. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but I think it, it's that, it's, it's, you know, more, a metaphorical thing of the kind of it's it's the pro, all these flowers and you know we think flowers you associate with spring and birth and beginnings and hope mm. but you know when you actually you know get near to Zora you find actually the flowers are just <laughs> just the first layer on the cake and beneath it there's just a large <laughs> layer of death there's a lot of uh, well, you know it's kind of yeah, it's kind of the two two ends two ends of the spectrum, really. Yeah, I wouldn't call it allegory, but there's a lot of that kind of almost allegorical symbolism in this, where you know, the um, son of Neil is is sort of that ideal, and then he talks about um, he talks about wanting to go to is it Cithurian, the the kind of fabled city, but he he describes it in almost the form of platonic forms, where mm-hmm. this is where all the ideals live. And that's where I want to get to. Mm-hmm. There's a interesting word too, and I, 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 I was like, really, Pearl? Um, page eighty-one. Uh, there's the description of a Cathuria. So it says, on the green and flowery mountains of Cathuria stand the temples of pink marble. The so color is in- really important to this poem. Um, and also scent comes up again and again and again. So it's it's not like, you know, he's having a black and white dream and he's he's watching sort of a silent film. This is uh very rich in color and scent. But it, this was interesting. Uh on the green and flowery mountains of Cathuria stand temples of pink marble, rich with carven and painted glories and having in their courtyards cool fountains of silver where pearl with ravishing music, the scented waters that come from the grotto-born river Narg. And Pearl is not P-E-A-R-L, but Pearl, like, as in uh, knitting? Yes. Mm. And I was like, wow, that is, that's that's good writing because it's got both, right? It gives Mm. you the, the color of pearls, which are beautiful, and also gives you the shape of the water turning sort of over. And purling. I'm I'm not a knitter, but uh, wow, what good writing! Yeah, so that, that particular so description um, of Cathuria that crops up again in one of the sonnets in Fungi from Yugath. Hmm, which one? Uh, Gardens of Yin. Gardens of Yin. I've read yeah. that one. Yeah. Oh, that is a nice. Yeah, that's 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 one of the very dreamy sort of. It's his dream unattained. Pagodas, about, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's almost it's almost word for word 
echoes of Lines of the Light Ship because we get for back to right. Thoria um, and Son Anil. Beyond that wall, whose ancient masonry reached almost to the sky in moss-thick towers, there will be terraced gardens rich with flowers and flutter of bird and butterfly and bee. There will be walks and bridges arching over warm lotus pools reflecting temple leaves and cherry trees with delicate boughs and leaves against a pink sky where herons hover. All mm. would be there. But had not old dreams flung open the gate to that stone-lanterned ways, where drowsy streams spin out their winding ways, trailed by green van branches, bending, <coughs> sorry, trailed by green vines from bending branches hung? I hurried, but when the wall rose grim and great, I found there was no longer any gate. That's right. This is the one of those. It is totally a dreamland. It's funny because, you know, the I don't know the structure of how these poems were written. Are they were they all written like back to back or do we know? Uh, Well, Fungi from yoga, he kind of uh, he wrote over um, effectively over the Christmas holidays one year in a huge burst of of poetry. I mean, this was quite late in the 20s. He pretty much stopped writing poetry apart from an occasional verse, um, and most of those were just things he wrote for friends. For, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't serious poetic works. They were, you know, a lot of them were just kind of little, little things to put in birthday cards. And occasionally he, he <laughs> wrote a long sort of, sort of prose poem, sort of short story, things like the, um, uh, the Haunted Lake is one. I would um, love a birthday card from H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> he did a lot of Christmas ones, right? Oh, he did. Christmas he did, yeah. Runs. He did a whole, yeah. whole series of them. Um, Yule, yeah. you would call mm. um, um, yeah. them. Well, this sonnet cycle was kind of a strange last burst of where he wrote, sat and wrote these 36 sonnets, kind of wow. pretty much out the blue over Christmas. And the actual sonnet cycle itself, I mean, people argue and we'll argue forevermore whether it's structured to them or not. Uh, I, I say there is a very definite structure. Um, but it's kind of, it's like a concordance of not so much all these plot elements in his mythology, because he, he only name checks a couple of Cthulhu mythos things and a couple of things from Dreamlands almost in passing. But thematically, you've got all the different shades of Lovecraft in the sonnet cycle. Mm. From mm. tales of rural horror that you know you find in short stories like um, the picture in the house. In the house, yeah. You've got your cosmic horrors. You've got your kind of sea-going horrors in the shape of the bells that go in the shadow of Innsmouth, and you've got lots of these sort of um, dreamy kind of stories. But you have a lot of the same recurring things of a quest for knowledge, of seeking after this kind of cosmic visions and beauties that don't get there, and the discovery of sanity-blasting horrors and. <laughs> it's a re- it's a really and it funky from it puts people off because it starts the first three have like a linked narrative that then disappears and everything's oh he just he's writing any old tosh and just and just bunged them all together but I think there is more going to that he's orchestrated and it ebbs and flows and alternates between people suffering sort of soul and sanity loss to people attaining. The, the sort of cosmic transcendence. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah, a lot I, of things that echo these early stories, like the White Ship, and yeah, I, I found I found that they were 
really rich. Last summer, I spent uh, every day I would do some uh, one poem with my students, and we'd like read it and then talk about the vocabulary, and then we draw pictures of what we see. And when we did the Gardens of Yin, that was a really vivid, yeah, it's because there's this giant wall, right, that reaches almost to the sky. It's very old. It's very beautiful. And inside, there are, the only things that can get get through are the herons, right? Mm. And so it's, oh, great, I'm going to go in there. And then the door is gone. Mm. And that's 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 the drowsy streams, right? Getting he's, he's, oh darn it, oh terrible. Yeah, I say Kafuria, that has you know huge temples, mm-hmm. of, you know, huge walls where you can only see the glorious turrets of the temples on the other side. I can just find that's the right. reference of. Um, I, I know there's pagodas there because I was yeah, like, whoa, yeah. pagodas, hey. Yeah, and even at the beginning, oh, you heard it. For for the eons that I dwelt there, oh no, this is actually in Sonanil. That's where the pagodas are. For the eons that I dwelt there, I wandered blissfully through gardens where quaint pagodas peep from pleasing clumps of bushes, and where the white walks are bordered with delicate blossoms. So it's like, yeah, you're going to visit a garden, and maybe he just got tired of the garden of Sonanil, right? It's sort of endless garden after endless garden. Yeah, I mean. There's that's oh, where this kind of allegorical um, kind of morality sense creeps into the poem of or the story which feels like a poem of of happiness yeah. and and what is what is enough and and you know that lo- Lovecraftian yearning almost for for more creeps into the story. Well, that's yeah. a, isn't that the, the, the Basil Elton's sin? Is that he reaches the land of Sonanil, where there is neither <laughs> suffering, nor pain, nor death. Everyone is wise and happy. It's infinite. There's no time. You know, everywhere you go, it just gets more beautiful. And yeah. yet he rejects it in favor of what seems to be a delusion of his own creation based on distant whispers. Of this right. Cthulhu so that we, he reckons he's going to be even better, and it's kind of really <laughs> better, better than Solanil. <laughs> can, can we call the Greybeard uh, man the Ancient Mariner? I mean, he's you know they call Coleridge calls him the Greybeard loon. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's you know I was equating the Ancient Mariner with um, Basil, but yeah, uh, in some ways the the old man who pilots the white ship is. Is just as much an ancient mariner figure, uh, an ancient mariner post, you know, post that experience where he's got wisdom and he's kind of trying to lead other people there. Well, the 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 man in the beard is him, and if if you read, you know, like Hypnos, right? The the guy says, you know, the police come and they say, "Dude, you've always lived alone." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "What?" Yeah. So uh, the um well, this in is- the uh, the bearded oh. captain, I mean, you know, I, I, I oscillate in between readings, between seeing him say, as uh, a seafaring Tyler Durden, um, ah. <laughs> uh, or alternatively, uh, a Coleridgean uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, sort of, you know, wise old man yeah. figure, uh, whose advice he ultimately foolishly doesn't heed. Right in the in the uh, comic book adaptation, the Jason Thompson, uh, there's a beautiful. Uh, one page sort of um, description. It's not really 
a description because there's no, it's, you know, it's just one, like six drawings or seven drawings of what it looks like in, in Sonanil. In the first panel, um, the coffins have opened up. The sky is uh, got a big trumpeter coming from it with an infinity symbol and all the dead people are rising, you know, fully formed and not disgusting out of their coffins. Right. It's like, yeah, there's no death. And then, you know, there's the beautiful pagodas, there's flowing waters, bright cities in the verdure, right? Gathering flowers, sleeping in, in what looks like a, a rice field, a room full of rice sacks or something like that. And, and then the white ship and below the white ship, really beautiful, uh, are by the anchors. All the clocks. Yes, I <laughs> love that detail in that. I was like, yeah, there, there's no time there, right? Because yeah. the people throw away their watches, not because days don't pass. And I thought, oh man, that's really good. This is when, like, usually, uh, I see, you know, Lovecraft comic adaptations. It's all about showing the monsters. And that's not what this is about. This is about showing the actual story, right? Yeah. Because Lovecraft doesn't show the monsters generally, right? The, the, the monsters are not really the focus. Uh-uh. It's the sort of the emotional reaction to the discovery that monsters exist. And this is, this is so interesting because it, it really gives you the sense of, oh my God, that's a beautiful place. And then he decides to leave it. There's also yep. a, a big Eastern theme to this, um, where uh, he mentions the the sweet smell of of Eastern shores even at the beginning, mm. and then there you mentioned the pagodas, which is you know a, a Eastern temple you know, structure, yeah. um, and it made it's making me think about our discussion last week about Lovecraft's you know Greco-Roman values, and so I'm wondering if maybe you know although Sona Neal is this perfect place. Um, I think by by kind of infusing it with a slight eastern eastern feeling, you know, Lovecraft may be commenting on, well, this isn't as perfect as it as it looks. Yeah, it's uh, his east, right? Yeah, the gardens of Yin. It sounds Asian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say it's about as Asian as as Coleridge, right? <laughs> yeah. Coleridge. yeah. You know, he's heard of Kublai Khan. He thinks he's cool because the name's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He's never been there. That's right. It's, it's very. It's it's also it's like um, romantic uh, po- era poetry. You know, well, it is. You have that kind of these, um, uh, you know, sort of fantastical Oriental places where the you know, the Far East was seen as being kind of almost so far away and so exotic. It was like Narnia and. <laughs> you find it as well in a lot of nineteenth century that, you know, Arabia is similarly sort of, you know, mythologized as this land of you know, shifting sands and uh, you know, ancient temples and thriving cities and colourful bazaars and it's kinda of, it's quite different it's quite it's quite a marked contrast to kind of how those regions are sort of thought of now. And it, it, it stru- structurally it's interesting too because I I, I was thinking a, a bit about this that a lighthouse, right, is about being stationary next to the the place where everybody, you know, is moving traffic back and forth. You're essential to that movement, but you're stuck there. 
And if you think about Lovecraft, right, he was sort of a homebody, but he he's living in what is one of the great American ports, right? Providence mm. is right in the center of the giant American fishing fleet, right? Everybody's leaving. Everybody leaves town. But he stays behind, <laughs> goes to the library, reads some more books, looks out of the water, sees the ships pass by. And so when he actually leaves and goes out on a bridge of moonbeams, um, it has to be in dreams. It's kind of sad that way, but it's, it's funny because if you do live, you know, like I live ne- next to the ocean, um, but I've been out there once in a while, not very often recently, but I've been out on the water. And yet I know the majority of people, they never, they never go out on the water. Probably because there's no place really to go, right? Mm. Mm. But, um, if you have, if you're in a, you know, a great port town and you know, it's like, uh, what's, what's that, um, American hub, uh, Atlanta, right? For the airplanes. Yeah. It's like you live in Atlanta and you never got on an airplane, right? <laughs> All those airplanes mm. coming and going, you never get on an airplane. Yeah, it's kind of tantalizing. You could do a, a science fiction version. You know, the guy lives in a spaceport and he never goes on a spaceship. Uh, you know what? I think there is a story like that. Isn't that uh, Heinlein's, um, uh, there's one about a, a professional beggar. He gets on a spaceship and goes to another planet, becomes another professional beggar or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of the, the moral of this story, too, is like, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Um <laughs> ends up where he started. Um, it's interesting. Um, in the comic book adaptation, I haven't read more of these um, Jason Thompson ones. Have you read any more, Mr. Jimin? Any more what, sorry? Uh, the Jason Thompson uh, comic book adaptations of Lovecraft. Uh, I know it's done Kadath as well. I, I think I've got Kadath on my shelf to read. <laughs> I want to read I want to read that because um, what's interesting is he, for the main character... He's just dri- sort of drawn a regular guy. But as soon as he gets out of his body, when he goes out on a bridge of moonbeams, he's not, he doesn't look like a regular guy anymore. He looks like, uh, like he has no nose. He's, he's more cartoony. The old wide, big then, wide eyes. Yeah, big wide eyes, very cartoony sort of face. I mean, they're all sort of cartoony, but, you know, he looks like a regular person. Uh, you know, he's got a regular nose. When he's when he's and when he comes back at the end, um, he's regained his regular features, which I think is it's interesting because it's it's like um, it it adds a layer to the dreaming. You're not going with your body, right? You're going with your spirit or something like that. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say, you know, now I look different because I left my body. It's just, he looks different. I thought, I think that's a really interesting, um, visualization, right? This isn't a guy carrying a pocket watch, uh, walking, walking through lands, you know, with a lantern. Uh, there are lanterns in those lands, but he's the one, uh, he, he finds them there. Um, Celepheus is very similar, uh, have you guys read that story? No. Yes, yes. Okay, so uh I think it's like the next year or something. But um it's about a guy who dreams um a lot. <laughs> he dreams a lot and he writes down his dreams, 
But then uh, when he shares his dreams with other people, they laugh at him. Oh, and man. So, yeah, and so he's, he stops sharing his dreams with other people and eventually even stops writing them down. And he just chooses to live in his dreams. Um, and he goes on, yeah, Mr. Jim Moon, you probably can explain it better than me. Well, yeah, if I'm right, the suggestion he, 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 you know, he becomes addicted to drink and drugs so he can dream stronger and stronger. And <laughs> although right. he was a, actually a well-to-do man with a mansion in Cornwall, um, he, he ends up a, a penniless tramp who uh, he's found washed up on the sea, on the beach. There's more uh, Coleridge uh, connections there for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But the but the, uh, the, clo- the closing thing is that you know travelers tell me that in the city of Selafas, King Karain's rules wisely and justly. Yeah, Karanis <laughs> is is yeah. how is that how you say it? Uh, Karain's is how I've said it, but uh, Rains, okay. One that, don't we? <laughs> don't we could be any. <laughs> I, but, I uh, remember again that sequelized in um, Dream Quest. Uh, right. Randall Carter visits this city, which you know this guy is revealed he actually dreamed into existence, and he still rules there eternally as a king. So yeah, he's died in real life, but his spirit—that's uh, just his body, right? His spirit mm. lives on in in the in the dreamlands. Uh, the the other connection is it just starts with a description of uh, well, quite early in it, anyways, has a description of the land of. He lives in, and there's, it has almost that parallel, um, except instead of looking out from the sea towards the land, we're looking from the land towards the sea, right? So he looks down past the, the mountains, past the harbor, past the city, past the harbor, past the headlands, to the ships on the sea, then to the horizon where the sea meets the sky. And that, that headlands, uh, in, in our story here, we've got, in the white ship, we've got uh, uh, Sonanil has uh, crystal headlands yeah. that meet in a bridge of crystal, right? So it's almost like uh, you're passing through our, and under the gate made of crystal. I mean, that's pretty, pretty. Yeah. <laughs> if you saw that in real life, you'd be, wow, that is not what I expected. It's it's a really cool um sort of visual visualization. I think that that's what's cool about this is we we do get visualization about pretty much everything. Yeah. Monsters are not visualized, right? They're just scented. Yeah. And then you have the uh, basalt pillars that that sort of are the foil to the crystal, the crystal mm-hmm. headlands of Sonanil. You have the basalt pillars on the west, yeah. The harsh, harsh, crushing basalt pillars. <laughs> I think it's more than that. This is touched with that the the, uh, the the clashing rocks of Jason and the Argonaut, the two yeah, exactly. like, riding together. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's, all, it's also I think um, uh, it is there's a hint to Greek mythology about apparently the gr- great pillars in the West that do literally mark the end of the world, where you sail beyond <laughs> that. Whoop! Uh, pillars of Hercules. Bye-bye. Yes. Or Her- yeah. Right, which is, uh, I guess, the border of the Mediterranean uh, meets the Atlantic sort of thing. Yeah, Gibraltar, I guess. Uh, speaking of which, um, I I noticed in in clicking around the Wikipedia entry for the White Ship, if you if you click around enough, um, you'll see that Thalerion is is clickable, 
And you find that DC Comics used Thalarion, uh, which is funny because that's the land that, that um, they never actually go to, right? Right. Uh, right? Am I right? Thalarion's the land that, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, yeah. It's last you're, you're laughing, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, and they use it to describe the opposite of Themyscira, which is the land that, um, Wonder Woman comes from. Right? So, that's the, Themyscira, isn't, isn't that the Amazon land? So it's all women, right? And there's another one that is, uh, Thalerion, which is all men. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting because they, they picked up the name from Lovecraft, right? Yeah. But, but then they did also something very Lovecraftian. There's no women in this story, right? That's, <laughs> that's the, the thing about, you know, uh, if you read Poe, there's lots of women. They're always dying. Yeah. They're always beautiful. They're always dead, but they're there. Uh, with Lovecraft, there are all these bearded men standing around. There's no, <laughs> there's no women. And so when he makes the land of Thalerion, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just men. And, um, there's a little clip, uh, showing it, an aerial view of Thalerion. And there's, uh, you know, there's a river of gold coming out of a, a river of, um, a, a lake of molten gold. And <laughs> somebody in the city is saying, I made this island for you, my Olympians. Solarion is called, it is called. Any who set foot on it without your permission will perish. Huh. So, uh, it's fun that, you know, they, they, it does sound like a sort of a Greek name, doesn't it? Solarion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounds like, I wonder if they're connected or if they're just sort of using a, whatever the 1920s, 30s equivalent of a name generator is. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's like an, a, a, a sort of a link there because you know Thalerion in the White Ship is described as the city of a thousand wonders, where mm-hmm. all mysteries that man has striven in vain to fathom resides, and kind of you do have a, a sort of echo of that in the, the DC comics Thalerion that you know is built by Zeus, um, mm-hmm. and it is, you know it is a city full of wonders, but not you know, not any old Herbert can rock up and come in. It's only for the <laughs> chosen. And uh, I I uh, think I've thought of this because it it says one of the more renowned residents of Thalarian was Jason, Jason, the famed Argonaut who sailed with Heracles upon. And so yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. He's from Thalarian, at least in the Marvel universe, <laughs> which are the DC universe, I should say. Yeah, I, I think. It's it's fun that that even in you know sort of a superhero comic, they're still drawing from you know one little brief mention in a nineteen nineteen story. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting too. With Jason uh, the Argonauts and his you know relationship with Medea afterwards, who he doesn't exactly treat equitably. So uh, <laughs> interesting gender subtext there. Hmm. So, Mr. Jim Moon, you, you sent me a link, uh, and uh, probably Seth too, uh, yeah. to a song, which I tried to listen to, but was not able to because it was on my phone, and they, sometimes it says stuff like, this is not available in your area, but it, it is, as long as it's not on my phone, so I didn't get a chance to, uh, 
to hear the song, but you've got the lyrics. This is from a band called The White Ship, or is... No, no, the, the band is called The H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> the H.P. Lovecraft, got it. Yeah. That's great. Um, who were kind of um, a, a late 60s sort of a folksy psychedelic band uh, who were that enamored with HPL. They, they named themselves, um, you know, after him. Uh, and they did, they did uh, in the original lineup, they did two albums and they did they had various songs that, you know, fans of Lovecraft will recognize illusions and names in. Um, disappointed a lot of Lovecraft fans because it's um, kind of folksy psychedelia, not kind of grinding, <laughs> shrieking cosmic <laughs> horror. Um, but, but you know, if you, if you like that kind of psychedelic sort of folksy sound, they are, they are pretty, pretty good. And uh, I do, I particularly like The White Ship. Um, and I think it's Will one of their songs. Yeah, if you listen to the lyrics, it is one that really does, you can see the connection. It's not just, I mean, Lovecraft's been, and Lovecraft creation has been name checked many times by rock musicians, often in a lazy name drop fashion. Uh, whereas this, as the lyrics I'll now read, you can see the connection to the story. The white ship has sailed away and left me here again. Out in the mist, I was never so near again. Sailing out on the sea of dreams, how far away it seems. Sailing upon the white ship. Home through the night, here in my darkened room. Sails of white across the misty moon. Floating across the sky, burning into my eye. Sailing upon the white ship. Out of my mind, nothing flows. Alone on the shore, but that's how it goes. Everybody knows how the wind blows. The white ship. Out of my mind, nothing flows. Alone on the shore, but that's how it goes. Everybody knows how the wind blows. The white ship. The white ship has sailed and left me here again. Out in the mist, I was so near again. Sailing on the sea of dreams, how far away it seems. Sailing upon the white ship. Sailing upon the white ship? Sailing upon the white ship. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Um, this is why I don't like songs, because the poetry is not as good. It's okay. But it only works with the music. <laughs> yeah, it'll work better with the music, is mm. my guess. Because it's, it's a long epic. So I think it's like a, a six, seven minute track as well. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, that is... I really extend those out. <laughs> But it's great that there's you know stuff out there that's not of the Cthulhu mythos because that's that sort of seems to be the legacy of Lovecraft. So it's nice that there are some other inspired things out there outside of that. Yep, definitely. Well, this is I mean you know people kind of forget that kind of we probably know Lovecraft today. Uh, and he is so prevalent in pop culture, largely down to the, the late 60s hippies and beatniks, who, m- much like um, J.R.R. Tolkien, kind of, you know, Lovecraft was known among SF fans and horror fans, but it was very much a, a culty thing until till the hippies got over and goes, wow, these are amazing! <laughs> and, you know, ensured we you know, had mass market paperback editions, and, you know, the 
Lord of the Rings and the works of Lovecraft could have easily just been kind of very niche sort of things, kind of um, like C.S. Lewis's science fiction, that, you know, you have to be a genre fiction fan to know they're there, rather than kind of things that everyone kind of knows about, even if you've not, don't recognize the author's name, you actually, you can't avoid the kind of creations cropping up second-hand or third-hand in pop culture. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. I, I got nothing left. <laughs> yeah, I've run aground. <laughs> We've run aground. I'm, uh, I'm thinking like that, that poem sucks. The, the, uh, the, <laughs> the music. And I'm thinking, here's a poem, Alethea Fricotes. Listen to this one. <laughs> Demoniac clouds are piled in chasmy reach off soundless heaven smothered in the brooding night, nor came the wonted whisperings of the swamp, nor voice of the autumn wind along the moor, nor mutter, <laughs> muttered noises of the insomnious grove whose black recesses never saw the sun. Oh, wow. Now that is poem. That's, that's a poem. When I, I I was a kid, I would listen to people's music, and I was like, "This sucks," because I'm listening to the lyrics, and I was like, "That's stupid." It's all it's, it's love stuff, boring love, boring love stuff, and then um, and then I I, uh, I I just generally didn't like music. Um, then uh, you know, Cream that band, mm, yeah. Uh, not only they got like talented musicians, but they actually wrote some actually halfway interesting lyrics. That one about like um, I don't know ancient Greek mythology oh, and tales of brave Ulysses. Uh, there you go. Oh, wow, big right? favorite of mine. Uh, yeah, and it's it's like wow, not only good sound, but also like some depth to the lyrics. It's like that's, yeah. When I hear it, I always remember the lyrics. <laughs> totally. You thought the leaden winter would bring you down forever, but you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun, and the colours of the sea bind your eyes with trembling mermaids, and you touch the distant beaches with tales of brave Ulysses, how his naked ears were tortured by the sirens sweetly singing, for the sparkling waves are calling you to kiss their white-laced lips. <laughs> Kiss their white lace. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Song. <laughs> oh wow! You, you, did you do that from memory? No, no. I tried to pull it. I'm looking it up now. Get it right now. But, uh, <laughs> the tiny purple fishes running, laughing through your fingers, <laughs> and you want to take her with you to the hard land of the winter. Her name yeah. is Aphrodite, and she rides a crimson shell. That's right. <laughs> Vaguely remember that, and that's like, yeah, that's a good song because it. Oh, what's Eric Clapton? There we go. Yeah, mm. but important part is the lyrics are fun. They they do stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think we we nailed this one. Yeah, I had, I had a lot harder time with this than the moon bog. You know, I had to read this three or four times. Oh yeah, it's, it out well. it's so worse. It's a it's a lot of work this story because it's it's so dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I yeah, it's funny because I, I looked on Goodreads at the reviews and people um, people like it.